0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, this is a Christmas sermon, but you'll see that it aligns with exactly what we've been going through in Ephesians. So it's kind of neat to see Paul say it uh, in the book of Philippians, talking about Christian unity and humility as he points to the miracle of Christmas, Christ taking on human flesh. Um, So beginning, Philippians 1, verse 27 But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only uh, look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, I pray that you open this text, which, as we consider it, <laughs> stretches our minds farther than their capability. Father, I pray that you would grant us the grace to see something of the wonder of Christmas and that that would change us, that it would humble us, that it would unify us. Father, I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the book of Philippians, if you're gonna do a word uh, study or, or look through what words are repeated throughout this book one of the major themes of the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. Paul continually expressing his own joy, his desire for the church to experience joy in Christ. And he's writing it from prison. In fact, the so-called Christian preachers are preaching against him as he's in prison. And he's even rejoicing that even though they have insincere hearts, they're preaching Christ. At Christmas time, if you look at the different signs out there, maybe the word joy is what you might see. At least it's in the top three of all Christmas decorations. I know up in storage at my house we have a uh, some red barn wood that we painted joy on it we probably should get it out as a decoration at christmas time where does joy come from you've probably heard it said that joy seems to be different than happiness Uh, And what's usually meant by that is happiness is based off maybe circumstances where joy is capable of surviving even difficult circumstances. And there's something definitely true in that, especially if we're talking about joy that comes from the resurrected Christ, the eternal Son of God. Uh, the angels announced the birth of christ in this way in luke 2:8 we read in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them fear not For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that'll be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is called, or who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's a joy and a peace that is described as good news from the angels. Last week, we talked about what are some of the most joyous times of your life? And I argued that the most joyous times of our life is when there's unity, when there's true fellowship and unity within families or within brothers and sisters in Christ or with friends that were made for this. And that the opposite of that is hell where we would be isolated from anyone else. Hell is not the place where you throw the raging kegger that never ends. In fact, it's the place where you are separated from anyone except the wrath of God. And we considered how Jesus described that, those standing at the door. You ate in our presence. They're essentially saying what we'd say today, we went to church. We knew all the lingo. Don't you remember us? And he said, I never knew you. And they weep and they gnash teeth because they're left out of this wonderful fellowship with Abraham and the prophets. And they themselves were cast out. And so we saw, we argued, we saw in the text that true joy comes out of unity and that Christ died on the cross to unify sinners with God and Jew and Gentile. Arch enemies on this earth reconciled in unified relationships and so when we think about joy, we need to think something more than what we might say is happiness. Joy is a gift from God that can only come from one fountain. Christ is the fountain of all joy. That's why Paul has joy even in prison. That's why Paul rejoices in says in the first chapter of Philippians that, hey, guess what? My imprisonment is turning out to be for Christ. The whole imperial guard has now heard the gospel. Many of them have come to trust in Christ. And besides that, other believers have more courage and boldness in the face of their opposition to speak boldly the name of Christ. We say, man, Paul was an optimist. He was. He says, I'm going to glorify God either way. If I live, I'm going to preach Christ. If I die, it's gain. Even in my death, I'm going to show you that my hope was not in this world, but was in Christ. His joy was seated in Christ. You read the beginning of 1 Peter, how those who are born again have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. You might say, yeah, but what if I lose it? Who are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And that's why he says, gird up the loins of your minds, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the day of Christ Jesus. So joy in Christ is seated in Christ. Hope is seated in Christ, not our circumstances. And so as we come to this text, we could spend so many sermons on this text we're just going to ask three simple questions to this text by no means do you ought you leave here today and say boy we've exhausted this text which i think is inexhaustible but we're going to ask these three questions what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of christ Remember in Ephesians 4, last couple of weeks, he said to walk in a way that's worthy of Christ. Here he says, here he's going to say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're asking the question, what does it look like? All right? And our first answer is going to be humility that brings forth unity. In this text, Unity is the goal put forth. We're going to see that that only comes from humility. All right? So look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How ought I to live? Every Christian should ask that question. What is the purpose of my life? And if you're a good Reformed Christian, you would say to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then I say, what does that look like? So while you're in the flesh, while you're down here, how ought you to live? What does Paul want when he says live a life worthy of or what the manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, he begins to tell us. So whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So in the ESV spirit is lowercase s. I think that's probably right. That means in your in in, in your inward being, that you're standing firm in in your hearts, in your minds, with one another. In Ephesians, he was pointing us to the, we all share the same spirit. Both truths are true. But he says that you you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's one Faith that is in Christ. The gospel of Christ is what unifies Christians. We can debate the fringes of theology, but what unifies the church is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Striving side by side, one spirit, one mind for the faith of the gospel. We don't get rid of theology in order to have unity. That's what liberal churches do. Well, let's not look at the Scripture. That divides us. We come to Scripture as born-again people, the Spirit of God enlightening enlightening our eyes to the truth of the Scripture, and are united with one another. This unity we looked at in Ephesians 4 is birthed out of Christian virtues, which start with humility. So Paul just does it opposite in Philippians. But let let me just remind you of, of what we read in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, so there it is, of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, In the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's unity. So to walk in a manner worthy of Christ is to walk with brothers and sisters unified. Unified. And that can never happen apart from humility. We cannot be united, or or let's say it this way, the greater the pride is, our selfishness in our own hearts, the greater the division will be in our families and in our churches. So what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? in unity, and that unity we're going to see in a moment is birthed out by humility, all right? Secondly, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to be fearless before our opponents, to speak the word of God fearlessly in front of our opponents. What can can Paul's opponents do to him? throw him in prison, he's going to witness to the guards. And now the leadership in Rome is going to start to become Christian. You kill him, well, that's what he wants. That's gain. You're going to threaten him with seeing Jesus right now, right then? That's far better. You're going to leave him? Well, that's going to mean he's going to preach Christ. He's going to live for Christ. If Jesus overcame death, and all your opponents can do is threaten you ultimately with death or torture for a short time on earth, and don't fear them. Stay on point with your proclamation of the gospel. That's what Paul's doing, that's what he wants from them. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So you go try to find something where he says do not be frightened in anything. Well our human hearts want to go find something. The doubting heart always says, "Yeah, but." to truths that are meant to solidify us, to be a foundation under our feet, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and not from God. You see, he wants to remind them what makes them different from them. They have a salvation from God. Christians do. And those who oppose it have not yet been converted. They're left in their rebellious state. And so he wants them to remember the privileges they have in Christ. So to walk in a manner worthy of Christ is to remember verse 29. The end of verse 28, your salvation is from God. I think he's also worried that as they suffer, they're going to begin to feel sorry for themselves and potentially get angry with God, quit clinging to that which they ought to be clinging to, to forget the promises of Christ. So he he says, don't be surprised by your opponents. Remember, you've been saved. You've been given new eyes. Because in verse 29 he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. So their faith in Christ did not begin in their own hearts and in their own will. But it was actually granted to them by the grace of God. That's what he means in Philippians 1.6 when he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So he wants them to remember that it's been granted not only that they should believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's a privilege to align yourself with Christ and therefore suffer. It's been granted to you. This kills the pity party for the suffering Christian, doesn't it? We don't have to pretend like suffering isn't hard. It is. But what we do need to do is we need to remember what is true about the providence of God in our life, the way Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, if necessary for a little while you should suffer, which means all suffering Christians have is necessary suffering. It's not pointless suffering. It's not God up there that spun this thing up and walked away and, or fell asleep and forgot about it, and now we're suffering. Any suffering a Christian has is necessary suffering, and it's temporary. It's not going to last. And so what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is to have Christian unity and humility, to be fearless before your opponents, and to be remembering God's grace towards you in Christ. To be remembering God's grace for you in Christ. And that's what we see as he continues on in Philippians 2, verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, let's just take this slow. Is there? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, obviously there is beyond what we can imagine events in our life cannot be so bad to steal the encouragement of Christ from us. Because Christ promised us that we would suffer first. In this world, you'll have trials, troubles, and tribulations. That ought not surprise us, Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial as though something really strange was happening. So we're not supposed to be surprised by it. He says if there's any encouragement in Christ, there's encouragement that cannot be extinguished in Christ. Is there any comfort from love? Is there any comfort from agape love? I mean, it's nice if someone loves us when we're lovable. I mean, that still feels good. Like I do something that for someone and then someone says, oh, you're so, I just love you. You're, you're so kind. Well, that feels good. Agape love is when you are still sinners, Christ died for you. It's not based on us being lovely. Now, think how much more comfort is there. Because if he loved me when I wasn't lovely, then I can't lose his love because he never loved me for the purpose of my loveliness. You see that? There's way more comfort in the sort of love that is a steadfast love that endures forever, that was never based in us, but comes out of the fountain of his own love. Is there any comfort in love? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Christian, does the Spirit of God live inside you? Christian, does the Spirit of God bring the present love of the Father right to you, not next to you, but inside you, and also bring the love of Christ presently to you, living inside you? He does. That's what the Spirit does. Is there any affection and sympathy. God knows we are dust. God knows who we are. Has God shown affection to his people? Has Jesus shown affection to his bride? He has. Well, since those are all yeses, Paul says something incredible in verse 2, which brings us to our second question. What could possibly complete Paul's joy in Christ? You see why it almost sounds blasphemous? Complete my joy. Someone might come to Paul and say, okay, Paul, do you have participation of the Spirit of Christ living inside you? I do. Well, is the... Fullness of the presence of Christ and the Father, then with you? It is. What does Psalm 1611 say? In his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It does. Well then, Paul, your joy should already be complete, but it's not. Why? Because Christ didn't merely die to reconcile you to him. But in that reconciliation with God, in that vertical reconciliation, God's plan and God's desire was that there would be horizontal reconciliation. Jew and Gentile loving one another. Because this love they share with Christ comes from Christ. Paul says the love of Christ has been poured into my heart. It's not my own love. It's a foreign love that has come into me that is meant to flow out horizontally. And so he says in verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see that? Unity is not a good thing along with a bunch of other good things. Christians loving one another is not something you ought to do along with all sorts of other things as though it's a whole bunch of good things thrown together. It's the point of your salvation. Do you realize that? Your baptism in Christ represents your union with Christ, and it represents your union with the body of Christ. It's all about union. It's all about reconciliation. So that the Apostle Paul says, although all those things are true for me in Christ, and I'm thankful for them, if you ask me today what would complete my joy, It's you all being unified. I'll never forget in my preaching class, or it might have been my hermeneutics class, I can't remember, uh, the professor put this text up, Philippians 2. And he says, so any expository preacher, the point of your sermon needs to come from the text. You don't use the text to say what you want to say. So that's, A faithful preacher goes to the text to tell his people what the text means. You don't use the text to say what you want to say. So he says, what's the point of the text? You look at Ephesians 2. I mean, your Bible might lead you astray. What does it say? Christ's example of humility. That's the first thing someone said. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. He says, "Eh, it's not true. That's not what it's about. Well, it's about the incarnation. It's about God becoming man. No, that's not the main point. Well, it's about unity in the church. No, that's not the main point. You want to know what the main point of the text is? Every other thing being said is a sub point arguing for this. The main point of the text is the command, and it's in verse 2 complete my joy. That's the point of the text. Pointing to Christ's incarnation, him becoming flesh is the illustration. But the text, Paul's saying, make your pastor happy. Give him joy. Complete your spiritual leader's joy. Complete it. What would that look like? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, same love, in full accord and of one mind. And then he shows what that would look like. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What's a, what, what's a life worthy of the gospel of Christ look like. Do nothing from selfish ambition. You want to know how miserable it is preaching this? <laughs> Stone. Dude. I mean, who am I? I'm like you. I read this, and full-on conviction comes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, arrogance, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what it looks like. I mean, how are you going to have conflict if everyone's doing that? The only conflict is going to be, no, you have this. No, you have this. (laughs) The conflict is who gets to bless who in that scenario. And then he says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, parents. This ought to be on repeat coming out of your mouth, right? This gets at our own hearts and our children's hearts. I want this toy. She had it for 10 minutes. I only had it for five minutes. What's the conversation look like with our children? Are you excited that your sister had it five minutes longer than you have? That's unnatural. In fact, we hear this, and it almost seems like pie in the sky. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You know? I mean, some parents might not, eat, not, might not even try because it's just, it's just opposite. There's no way. There's no way it can happen is how it might seem, which brings us to our third question. How can I live like that? How can I be like that? Not look to my interests, but to the, the interests of others. Not to do anything, out of selfish ambition. He says in verse 5, I want you to look at it, have this mind among yourselves. Have it, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right. Paul is not saying, live like Jesus. Just become more like Jesus. Just try. I'm going to give you an illustration of Jesus, and can you just be a little bit more like Jesus? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Christian, have this mindset, have this mind, which is yours. You already have it. You have the mind of Christ living inside you in the spirit of God, which means we just don't. Use the mind of Christ, which we have living inside us in Christ. Are we sure that that's a good translation? It's shocking to look at it. It's yours in Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Or what did Jesus tell his disciples? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. See, Jesus isn't holding out on them. Jesus is telling them all that he has heard from the Father. Well, I don't know the mind of Christ. I'm just just a human being. You expect me really to live with my coworkers or fellow church members or my spouse or my children in this way? Paul says, you know what? why don't you complete my joy today? Why don't you complete my joy? Why does it complete his joy? He's seen the fruit of the work of Christ at work in their lives, which he knows is going to be completed. He knows it's going to come to its final resting place. You'll have a heart with no selfishness left. That's incredible to think about. Well, how is it ours in Christ? Well, because we get to look at Christ, and it's in looking at Christ with faith that our lives become transformed. Not merely knowing it in our head, it's when we read about the incarnation, which evidently it's going to be next Sunday. So when we read about the incarnation and we believe it by faith is when our hearts become transformed. And so you might be sitting there today saying, I can't do it. I don't think I can change. I'm just too selfish. I don't think the Lord can help me in this area. I don't think the Lord can help my children in this area. He can. And he will. And you and I need to look and consider the wonder of Christmas. You see, in the incarnation, that's a preview to next week, the one who is most glorious takes a descent beyond what our minds can comprehend. The one of total glory takes a trek to the lowest possible place anyone could ever go. And think about this. The humility of Christ is different than ours in this way. See, for us to be humbled is we've gotten to a proud spot and we need to get back to where we ought to be. You see? Come back to reality. Well, Christ is glorious, and he willingly came to the lowest spot. And what the end point of next week's sermon is going to be, so you can chew on it, I want you to feel the fruit of it, is this. Every good thing, every good thing that we have in Christ, every good thing that we have from one another will flow out of humility. Humility. That's where it's going to come out of. It's through the ultimate humbling, that ultimate exaltation and resurrection and hope and reconciliation and an imperishable inheritance comes. So don't keep that pride. Don't keep that bitter heart. Don't do it. Don't be concerned with winning. Nothing good comes from pride and you have christian the mind of christ and if you're here today saying what do you mean about the humiliation of christ how can i have a relationship like this with other people and with god well christ being god himself took on human flesh so that he's truly god and truly man and on this earth The worst wasn't being born in the manger. It was just descent from there. To the point where he is hanging on a cross, naked, bearing your sin and my sin. The reason why he can bear the sins of anyone who would trust in him and actually pay for their sins is because he's truly God. He's eternal. He has eternal worth. In love, he goes to the cross, and he dies for sinners. So that as he bears the wrath of God on that cross for sinners, they no longer need to fear dying under the wrath of God. In fact, that same one who died rose three days later and he said to his followers, he says, though you die, yet shall you live. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Why? Because death is separation Ultimately, spiritual death is what? Separation from God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. How does that end? I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you can be reconciled to God. And as you're reconciled to God, his love will be poured into your hearts And your broken relationships can start to be mended as your pride starts to come down to the point where you can even love your enemies.